From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, Femto-AK Fidelity and Cross-Linking Consistency at ESCRS. I think the optical zone is a big issue here, and, and, and that was probably one of the mistakes that we've made along the way. First this. The Combined Ophthalmic Symposium, COS, presented by ASCRS, ASOA, and ASORN, is moving from the Riverwalk to the Colorado River as this exciting meeting relocates from San Antonio to Austin. From August 21st to 23rd, COS educates your entire practice all in one weekend at the brand new JW Marriott Austin. If you've never been to Austin, it's a great place, consistently ranked as one of America's best cities to visit and attracting more than 21.5 million domestic visitors each year. Formerly known as the Ophthalmology Symposium, COS offers an ICD-10 course, resident and fellow programs, ASOA practice management, integrated practice optometrist, nurse and technician programs, as well as an excellent program for the practicing ophthalmologist. Registration is now open, but the early bird registration deadline is Wednesday, July 15, and the housing deadline is Wednesday, July 29. Go to cos.ascrs.org for more information to book housing and to register today. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the ESCRS annual meeting in London. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Richard Davidson on Femto AK Fidelity and from Farhad Hafezi on Crosslinking Consistency. I'm here with Rich Davidson. You know, Rich, we're 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 told that that, that the femto is is this very precise tool, and you know we can plan things out to the to the micron, to the nanometer. Well, not to the nanometer, but you know, to 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 a, a precision that is exceptional. You did a study looking at what we achieve, what we achieve relative to what we aim for, both in terms of the the geometry of the incision, you know, what the plan depth is, and the effect that it has on cylinder. Can I get you to talk about what the study was, how, how you set it up, uh, and, and then, of course, what you found? Sure. So we actually broke it into two different studies. The first study looked at how much astigmatism are we actually correcting with the femtosecond laser. And the results were quite variable. In some cases, we were aiming for one or one and a quarter diopter, and we only corrected a third of a diopter. In other cases, we were pretty close to what we were aiming for. We then decided to to look at were we actually getting the depth that we intended, meaning if we were going for 85% depth in the cornea, were we getting 85% depth? And in fact, it was quite variable there as well, meaning some cases we were very close to 85% depth and other cases we were off. And the, and the variability was between 7 and 13%. Well, that's, you know, thir- 13% at an 80% depth, that's, that's a lot. Correct. Right? So correct, uh, yeah. w- when, when you saw this, this variability, was it generally skewed towards... Um, uh, less depth, or, or, or were you just as likely to get more depth 
Uh, um, it was skewed to. towards less depth. We never. Well, that's fortunate. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, we, there were no cases in which we were deeper than we intended. And what about with correction of cylinder? What did you find there? Correction of cylinder. There were two patients that had their axis flipped. Otherwise, we were under correcting the cylinder as well. So, uh, do, in in terms of your own clinical practice going forward. Um, are are you going to be more more conservative, less conservative where where you currently are? And and when when you I'm, I'm sorry I should sure. have let you finish that question. I have to get this one out, no. <laughs> which is um, generally and and prior to the study, what percentage of the manifest cylinder did you aim to correct with your femto AKs? So we were aiming to correct the full cylinder if possible, meaning if it was a diopter and a quarter based on their keratometry readings, we're aiming for a diopter and a quarter. Um, this is still a work in progress for us, meaning we are actually continuing to be more aggressive. We've been using the Donenfeld nomogram, and when we first started doing this, we were using 66% of the Donenfeld nomogram. We then switched to 85%, and now we're using 100% of the Donenfeld nomogram. Um, we don't know what to do about the depth issue yet, and, and some of the depth readings may be artifact in the sense that it's very hard to image these incisions using the Visante OCT. And so um, some of, the, some of the, the factors that we may be off may also be due to the fact that we're not measuring them well. Wait, no, no, I understand what, yeah, yeah. what you're saying. That's a valid point. So let, let, me, let me take you back to something that, that you just sort of skimmed, skimmed over here. Uh, you're using the Donenfeld uh, manual LRI um, where the optical zone is generally much larger than we're doing with the femto, you're using this for for intrastromal treatments. Uh, we're actually all of our incisions have been opened in this study. Have so they? yeah, they've not been intrastromal. We do some patients intrastromal as well, but for the purpose of this study, we opened all of these incisions. Do you compensate for the? Fa I mean, when when you're planning things out, do you compensate for the fact uh, that the that the optical zone that you're treating is is, is smaller than is typically used with the with the Donenfeld? Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think the optical zone is a big issue here, and and, and that was pro pro probably one of the mistakes that we've made along the way is the fact that. We're looking at, you know, we use an optical zone of either 8.5 or 9 millimeters on every patient. But when you think about it, when you look at this, uh, uh, the images on the screen, 9 millimeters for some patients are closer to the limbus than others. Right, and of so what we really need to start focusing on is how far in from the limbus are we on every patient? Because if I'm just using 9 on every patient, I may be going through 700 micron cornea versus um, a 600 micron cornea, depending on where it is for that patient. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you for for, for bringing this data to us sure. today. Uh, this is a real sort of sort of practice changing thing. And I want to thank you for being so generous with your time with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks very much. I'm here with Farhad Hafezi. Farhad, um, let let me let me ask you this. I'm I'm excited about cross cross linking. I know you are. We all are. The response that we get uh, with the treatment is predictable usually, but sometimes there are patients who produce a response to treatment that is different from what we expected. Why does that happen? Yes, Josh, when I, when I received the title of that presentation, I had to first think on, on how to categorize um, the presentation. And I realized that one way of categorizing might be we've been performing this uh, treatment for 15 years now and there is a lot we do not know yet and maybe sometimes we encounter un unexpected responses because we deal with mechanisms we don't fully understand and on the other hand we sometimes encounter unexpected responses because we do not respect 
what we already should know and what is already published. So I think it's it's a mixture of both the unknown that is that has to be conquered and the the known that is not always in the surgeon's mind when he performs the treatment. So let's let's sort of break it down. Let's start with with the with the knowns, the things that we should understand that the treatment produces that that we're not managing in the way that the patient needs. So if we start with this, I think the two most common risks that I've seen and unexpected responses were damage to the endothelium and post-op infection and melt. Now damage to the endothelium strictly should, can only occur if there is too much energy arriving at the level of the endothelium and part of cross-linking is pure physics. It's, it's respecting the Lambert-Bear law of absorption of energy the deeper you get into the tissue and when we were looking at all the cases that were reported in the literature of endothelial failure, there is not a lot of them but they exist, then they share two things. Um, they all used riboflavin with dextrain in it and we know that dextrain um, considerably thins the cornea during the 30 minutes of installation and none of these reports remeasured thickness at the end of the 30 minute installation. So probably the endothelial damage reported in these studies simply occurred because the cornea was thinner than mm -hmm. 400 microns at the end of the treatment. And this is by non-respecting the physics behind it. And um, this is one issue. The other issue is the melts and the infection. I personally, in 15 years of treatment, did, was lucky, maybe lucky, but I, I've never seen an infection. But um, I do never use NSAR, for example, in, all, in my patients. Um, the Academy has, has a clear recommendation on NSAR after surface ablation, for example, and you may use them, and I'm fully in line with this. The only problem is if the surgeon gives the NSAR into the hands of the, of the patient and tells them, come back in three days, I'll put a bandage lens on your eyes, and use these drops three times a day. Now, we all know that NSAR, as a side effect, are, are a mild and have a mild anesthetic effect. So the patient will for sure not use these drops three times but 30 times because it helps him dealing with the pain. And NSAR may induce matrix metalloproteinases which lead to corneal melt and, 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 and increase the risk of infection. So I think it's a lot about understanding the substances that we use postoperatively and apply what is known and sometimes this is not as respected and, and, then, and then you see very unexpected results. Now, can you see um, results that you don't expect from collateral tissue damage? You know things like limbal stem cells is what I'm thinking about. Limbal stem cells were for long an issue. Um, we have three studies out now and the, 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 the cumulative conclusions let us say that it is probably safe to do a sector irradiation of the limbus in case you need it. For example, if you treat a pellucid degeneration or um, peripheral melting like enterians degeneration. Um, there are studies on the mRNA level of the, of the gene expression of um, stem cell markers and there is an in vivo study of, of our team that just appeared in IOVS in the animal model and we've shown a lot of light on these animals. Twice the normal fluence used in clinical practice, 360 degree irradiation and we didn't see on the histological immunohistochemistry level we didn't see any any harm done and the speed by which the epithelium closes which is the most important marker for stem cell function was totally unaffected so we believe that this is safe 
Plus, in 15 years of clinical practice, no case of limbal stem cell decompensation has been reported. So I think it's quite safe to do so. So let's say that, 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 we've, that we've done a treatment and I'm giving you as a given that the cornea thickness was fine. There, uh, we, we, we don't have an issue with anything bacterial. There's no collateral tissue damage. Perfect, perfect treatment. But the patient still de develops some degree of keratitis. Why does this happen? Keratitis, in, in, in my eyes, I believe might be might be related to the hands of somebody who is not used to deal with an open surface every day. If I talk to fellow refractive surgeons that also crosslink, they never report an infection to me because they handle, in a PRK, they handle these open surfaces every day. But if you put on a bandage, if you perform crosslinking from time to time and you put on a bandage lens on that, on that patient's eye for four days, you increase the risk of infection by a factor 10 to 15. And, and this is something an experienced effective laser surgeon probably would avoid. I think it's all about handling the open surface. And what about the, the, the results that uh, can be uh, seen that, that you would categorize as from, from an, a, 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 how do I say, from a, a poorly understood etiology? I mean, what are, what are some the of the side. things you're thinking about? This is highly interesting. Um, there are two unexpected results we face right now in clinical practice, which is if you increase the intensity, we, you don't get as good clinical results as with the slow, long-term known Dresden protocol. And on the other hand, the transepithelial approach doesn't seem to work as well. And they might have a common denominator, which is oxygen. Because so far, we've been looking at light, which translates to energy, and to riboflavin. And all the studies were about, how do I get enough riboflavin in this cornea? If, if it's epithelium on, I need tiontophoresis as an active transport. And, and we believe that once there is enough riboflavin, then everything, everything should be fine. And it doesn't seem so because oxygen might be the third critical component. We performed cross-linking in a helium atmosphere. So just by depleting the 21% oxygen that is in the environment down to 0.1% and then nothing happened. No really? biomechanical effect at all. We published this in TVST last year, the new Arvo journal, which means that if you take the oxygen molecule out of the equation, and you don't get any cross-linking. And the concern is if you, if, if you need oxygen and singlet oxygen to in, induce the process, then you might not want to go over a certain level of intensity because you need, to res you need the, the oxygen to replenish the tissue. And if you come with a lot of intensity, uh, you, you decompensate the steady-state mechanism and there is not enough oxygen for cross-links to occur. And if you have the epithelium on top of it, even with enough riboflavin in the cornea, you might have an additional barrier to the oxygen. So the worst thing you can do is high-intensity epithelium on rapid cross-linking because you will simply run out of uh, this third essential factor. That's, that's our current belief. Well, that's, that's really neat. That's really cool. Farhad, I, I want to be. You know, I want to thank you very much for, for, for bringing this, this, this data to us and for being so generous with your time with us today. Thank you for helping us spreading the message. Ask questions of Dr. Hafezi, Dr. Davidson, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. 
write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.